Welcome to Whoviana, an unofficial Doctor Who podcast hosted by the official Josh Nares. Whoviana is for the woman who is outside the government and beyond the police, but isn't going to brag about it. Today, we're going to be talking about the 12th Doctor. But first, why do people who have never animated before think that animation is easy? All that and more in this episode of Whoviana. Welcome back to Huviana. Yet another episode, can you believe it? We're just releasing them now. It's content, baby. Personally, I don't like using the C word on this podcast. The C word being content, of course. But I guess a podcast would count as content. But we're not going to think about that right now. Today, we're going to be talking about the 12th Doctor, who I love. I love Peter Capaldi. I think he's brilliant. But I feel like a lot of people, this was very much like a tipping point in the popularity of Doctor Who. You had a lot of like people who had watched like David Tennant, Christopher Eccleston, Matt Smith, and then Peter Capaldi came along and it was such a departure from the new series that I feel like a lot of people weren't ready for it. But I feel like a lot of classic series Doctor Who fans were on board with Peter Capaldi because we've we've experienced that more grumpier Doctor, you know, with the first Doctor and the sixth Doctor specifically, who are quite unlikable at times, but over time, you grow to understand them and grow to like them. But in the new series, we hadn't really seen that. This was a point where a lot of my friends who watched Doctor Who stopped watching. And it was usually after series eight that was they were like, look, I tried it. Wasn't for me, babes. I'm off. But we're going to go into that a bit more later. But first... Excuse me, I'd like to speak to your manager. Welcome to The Full Karen, the segment where I complain about something Doctor Who related or completely unrelated. It's up to me. It's my podcast, my rules. And if you don't like it, I'll speak to your manager. Why do people say that animation is easy? I see specifically Doctor Who animation. I see this all the time online in the YouTube comment section on Gallifrey Base and the platform formerly known as Twitter. I feel like people think that because it's cartoons, it's somewhat easy. And they like to use that word. They like to use the word cartoon just to minimize it, to make it seem like this is a small little thing that doesn't really matter compared to film, which is obviously so expensive. And when we talk about Doctor Who animations, a lot of people are like, well, um, you know, the Daleks Master Plan, it has 12 episodes, so that's hard. Whereas The Highlanders has four episodes, so that must be easy. And it doesn't necessarily come down to the length of an animation. And it feels like a lot of people are like, I'm an expert. <laughs> it's like these people who have never worked in animation before are like, oh, I know what's up. I know what how it works. I know how easy it is. It's so simple. Especially with like the advent of AI and everyone's like, oh, AI can do it in about five seconds. Have you seen AI animation? It is literally the most terrifying thing you've ever seen in your entire life. You might be fooled for a second when you look at AI stuff, but then when you look at it for longer than like five seconds, you're like, this doesn't make any sense. You can see the details are lacking and everything's kind of jumbly and messy and weird. And also it's these people who have, don't really actually know anything about AI or anything about animation and they just say, AI can do it. Can it? How does it do it? Where does it do it? What is this program that you're talking about? Uh, because they don't actually know. 
they just say, AI can do it. It sounds like, <laughs> have you ever dealt with like a boss or a manager who doesn't actually know how the business works and it's like the employees who do it and they're like, oh, you can do this, but it's something you can't actually do or they promise some a client something that you can't actually achieve. And you're like, you're just using buzzwords. You're promising stuff that you don't even understand. And I feel like people are doing that with AI. They're just saying AI can do it, but they haven't actually done any research into how AI can do it. But going back to like traditional animation anyway, so if we're talking about how the Doctor Who animations are done, nothing about that process is easy. And a lot of Doctor Who fans always complain about how it looks cheap and it's it's cheap and nasty animation. But the budgets on those animations are quite high. And I think it's funny how critical people are of these animations, but then they're hyping up AI as the savior. These official animations, at least throughout the entire production, the character models are consistent, the sets are consistent. Whereas with AI, it doesn't memorize anything. It forgets as soon as you tell it something. So if I'd said, oh, Jamie walks over to the window and then Jamie walks away from the window, the window will look different in both shots. Jamie might be wearing completely different costumes between shots. And it's like, yeah, maybe in the future we can direct AI to do certain stuff, but I don't think that's going to be happening anytime soon. And I think people are being like, let's do AI now. We need to just chill out. Just, just chill out for a second and wait. Maybe in the future it will do something. But at the moment, I think it's a bit of a grift and it doesn't look very nice. And I prefer what the teams are doing on Doctor Who animations now. I hate to keep going on about AI, but if AI can do it, why don't you make it do it? If it's so easy, why don't you log onto your computer, download this mythical AI program and just make it animate an episode of Doctor Who? I'd love to see the results. I would love to see that. It would be hilarious. But if you think it can do it, be my guest. I would love to be proved wrong. If you can write in, generate the Daleks master plan animated as if it was recovered and it was photorealistic and looked just like it was back, then great. I'd love to see that. But I haven't seen anything like that. I've seen nothing of the sort. So, hmm, interesting. Basically, all I'm trying to say about these Doctor Who animations is that they're not as cheap as you think they are. I don't think they're as easy as you think they are. If I'm going to go out and say something like animation is easy, I want to make sure that that's something I've done before. I, I've animated stuff before and I wouldn't say it's easy. I think there's ways of cutting corners and making it simpler, but I don't think it's easy. And I think saying it's easy is really insulting to these people who put months and months and months of effort into these productions. Like We all know that people in the animation industry are usually underpaid. So these people who are overworked, underpaid and underappreciated, and then you come along and say they're just a bunch of cheap cartoons, I think that's a bit mean. I think criticizing the animations is fine, but saying they're cheap, I think is rude. I think saying that you don't like the look of them is fine. I think saying, I don't like the stylistic choice they made is fine. These are all critiques that are fine. But I think when we say it's cheap and easy, I think that's really disrespectful and I don't agree with that at all. I feel like I've just vented for like 48 hours. But yeah, how do you feel about the Doctor Who animations? Do you like them? I know so many people who buy them and never watch them. 
I love that type of Doctor Who fan. They make me laugh so much. I love the collector mindset where they need to like check it off their little spreadsheet, being like, yes, I own this. But they actually don't care about Doctor Who. It's more about the the accumulation of knowledge. I love that. That's crazy to me. Anyway, we'll be right back after this message from our sponsors. I just heard myself gulping through the headphones and it's like, go, go. <sighs> That's fucking disgusting. Electric chair. All right. Today, we're going to be talking about Peter Capaldi, the 12th Doctor. Is it the 12th Doctor anymore? Why are we doing numbers? It's We've completely screwed the pooch on that, but we're not talking about that today, babes. We're talking about the 12th Doctor, innit? So, Peter Capaldi is probably one of my favorite Doctors of all time. I feel like he is very much a classic series Doctor Who fans doctor. Whereas, you know, like David Tennant is very much a new series Doctor Who fans favorite doctor. And I think both of them show different sides of the doctor that appeal to different people. I think some people like to see the doctor as an older person who's a little bit grumpy. You know, I think about like John Pertwee's doctor. I think about William Hartnell. I think about Peter Capaldi, that type of doctor. And then you've got the more goofier doctor, the one who's a bit more silly, the guy that you bumped into in a dark alleyway, you'd probably want to run away. I'm talking about Tom Baker, babes, David Tennant, Sylvester McCoy. You know, these are kind of goofier doctors, but they can be really serious as well. Matt Smith is a good example as well. You know, so you've got two really different sides of this character. So for me as a classic series fan, I was really excited about Peter Capaldi being the Doctor. I heard rumors that Peter Capaldi was like up for being the Doctor. And I was really excited about that because I'd watched The Thick of It. And I think he's brilliant and he's so great and he's so funny. So I thought, oh, he'd be a great Doctor. And especially at that age, it was like 2014, wasn't it? So I was like 19, 20. So I'm like leaving my teenage years where... You know, and it's very much at the time where Doctor Who isn't as cool as it once was. So the idea of the show becoming a bit more dark and serious and a bit more adult um, appealed to me. So it was less cringe to like Doctor Who. And that first season, Series 8, I loved it. It was very much what I was looking for at the time. It felt like a completely different tone for the show and it felt really daring. And I instantly fell in love with Capaldi's portrayal of the doctor but it was a weird time because that's when a lot of people that i was friends with was like i don't know about this guy i i don't really feel like he's the doctor and i felt like if you hadn't seen the classic series before and you really know christopher Eccleston, uh david Tennant, and matt smith you'd be like yeah this guy is not acting like the doctor whatsoever he is so different um so a lot of people that i knew who watched doctor who just stopped watching they gave it a few episodes, most of them, and then they were like, it's not for me, babes, which I found really difficult. Luckily, my partner was really into Peter Capaldi's Doctor because um, I made him watch a lot of classic series because I was evil. And he must have really liked me because we actually sat down and watched reconstructions, like telesnap reconstructions of missing episodes. So <laughs> um, that's love, baby, because who does that? And I also think with Series 8, you had like Missy and I think Michelle Gomez is probably one of the best things to ever happen to Doctor Who. I, know, I think that's quite controversial. I know a lot of people don't like Missy and Michelle's interpretation of the Master. I think if you balance the darkness and the light with Missy, I think she does it better than John Sim does. I think John Sim was too wacky. 
Whereas I thought Missy was so funny. And I think Michelle Gomez is just kind of a natural, like funny person. And I just really believed it. But when she was like evil and like, killing Osgood and stuff like that, you really like, well, she is, she's crazy. She's nuts. So I love Michelle Gomez's master. And then when series nine came along, it really felt like the character of the 12th Doctor was being completely rewritten. And it felt to me like studio interference. It felt like the BBC would be like, you need to bring it back. He's too dark. People aren't relating to him anymore. This is not the Doctor people like. And then they made him kind of wacky, you know, with like the stuff with him playing a guitar and a tank and the sonic sunglasses. I like the sonic sunglasses, but, you know, it was a bit goofy. And I understand why they did it because they were trying to be like, don't worry, Doctor Who's not that dark anymore. It's fun. You know, remember Matt Smith? He was wacky. And now Peter Capaldi's wacky. I can't think of the right, the nice way of saying this, but it felt like they chickened out. They felt like they they gave in to studio pressure. But, you know, I, I don't I don't blame like Stephen Moffat and that. If, B- if the BBC are saying you need to change this up because the show is not doing well, you do that. You make that change. You want the show to continue. I just think it's sad that they weren't given the chance to properly develop his character and slowly morph him into a kinder person. I, I like when Peter Capaldi's becoming more kind, but I don't think he needs to become wacky. That's just kind of how I feel about it. And then we reach 2016, which was probably one of the worst years to be a Doctor Who fan, it, for me specifically as well. You know, we didn't get a full season. Um, we got one episode, which was The Return of Dr. Mysterio, which I've watched twice in my entire life, and I've hated it both times. It was like we were going through like a Doctor Who drought, and this is what we got. And to make it even worse, we got class that year. I couldn't believe that show was made because it clearly wasn't a Doctor Who spinoff, but they forced it to be a Doctor Who spinoff. It was just like a teen drama so it was a really depressing year to be a Doctor Who fan. And it was one of those moments where I was like, do I really want to keep watching this show? Especially that gap as well. A lot of people just kind of forgot about Doctor Who altogether. I remember I went to a costume party and I dressed up as Doctor Who. And I had so many people asking, who are you? Who are you dressed up as? And I was like, I'm Doctor Who. And they were like, oh, a few years earlier, if I went to a costume party, there'd be at least one or two people dressed up as Matt Smith as, as the Doctor. That was completely gone. I don't know if this is an Australian-centric thing, because I'm from Australia, but like Doctor Who was gone. It was dead by this point. And 2016 was really the year where I was like, oh, no one's watching this anymore. So yeah, it was a bit of a rough time. But you know, then Series 10 came along, and I felt like they finally got that balance of the 12th Doctor, where he was a bit nicer, but he could be a bit angry sometimes, but he wasn't as wacky. I I like the vibe of the series. I think the episodes are a bit hit or miss. Um, I think a lot of them are just, that's pretty good, but nothing really stellar. There's nothing that really stands out where I'm like, that was amazing. But yeah, so that's like an overview of his era from my perspective, the epic highs and lows of the Peter Capaldi era. I now want to go and talk about the Doctor Who magazine 60th anniversary poll. 
This is where readers were asked to vote each story out of 10. And then they broke them up individually between each doctor. So we're just going to be talking about the 12th doctor stories. So we're going to be talking about the top three and the bottom three and some stories that I think were ranked a bit lower or a bit higher than I thought they would be. The top three are World Enough in Time slash The Doctor Falls. Number two is Heaven Sent. And number three is Murray. I was going to say Murray on the Orient Express. <laughs> number three is Mummy on the Orient Express. So World Enough in Time slash The Doctor Falls, I think, is a pretty good number one. I think it's a great story. Um, you know, you've got two masters. You've got a new Cyberman origin story. There's a lot going on, but I think it manages to balance it all really well. I think it's well paced. I love what they did with the master's storyline about, you know, is Missy becoming a good person too, which is very reminiscent of, you know, the 12th Doctor asking if he was a good man. You know, they're having similar story arcs, like reflecting on their own identity. And I feel like John Sim does a great performance in it. I had no idea that he was in prosthetics for the first episode and that surprise actually got me. Um, whereas a lot of people are like, oh, I knew that straight away. I'm like, well, I didn't. So I enjoyed it a bit more. Obviously we all knew John Sim was going to turn up at some point, but I still didn't know how he was going to turn up. I think if I didn't know he was going to appear, I think I probably would have had a heart attack and died. I think it would have been like, cause I would, I was completely shocked. I had no idea that that was him dressed up. And I also love the fact that the, you know, the master's gone back to like dressing up in different costumes and disguises, which is a very classic series. And I also will stand on my pedestal for a millionth time that I think this really should have been Peter Capaldi's final story. It should have been his regeneration because that was the initial plan. But when they were doing the handover from Stephen Moffat to Chris Chibnall, Chris didn't want to start his era on a Christmas special, which is fine. I totally get that. But in order to keep the slot, Stephen Moffat was like, all right, we'll do a Christmas special and then that will be Peter's final episode. Therefore, you can keep the Christmas slot. And then hilariously, Chris didn't keep the Christmas slot anyway. So, hmm, curious. Anyone who knows me knows I'm not a big fan of Twice Upon a Time. The return of the first Doctor played by David Bradley kind of overshadows the entire conversation about that story. I don't think people really talk about Peter Capaldi's performance that much in it. I rarely think about the fact that he regenerates in there. It doesn't really come to mind. I think about um, my mixed feelings about David Bradley's performance. Because in The Doctor Falls, you know, the Doctor's lying in a field being uh, destroyed by Cybermen and he's looking into the, star and the skies and he's like, I'd hope there be stars, which I think is a beautiful final line for the 12th Doctor. But... Unfortunately, his final lines is this horrible speech that's based on something he said at a convention once about how something about children and it was just really difficult to watch and it was just full of zany, weird things. And I just think if it was like halved and like one of those ideas was his final speech, I think it would have worked, but it was just not a scene I liked. It was not for me, babes. But I'm going to stop talking about Twice Upon a Time because that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the next episode, which is number two, Heaven Sent. For me, Heaven Sent is my number one. I think that's my favorite Peter Capaldi episode. I think it is possibly one of the greatest Doctor Who episodes of all time. But it's one of those stories where it's like, if you're a Doctor Who fan, 
you will love this story. But if it's your first Doctor Who episode, it will have nothing on you. Because the power of the story, you have to have the knowledge of the fact that Gallifrey is being locked off and the Doctor can't get back. And now he's stuck in this place where he has to fight and fight and fight to get out. And it's so powerful. It really feels like the return to Gallifrey is earned. It's not like he just pulled a lever and there he was. He was at Gallifrey, which which has no dramatic emphasis whatsoever. But the fact that he is stuck in this place and he's fighting and fighting and fighting to get out like for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years. And he's having to figure it out every single time. And when he learns the truth, it's too late and he can only do a few punches and then it's again and again and again. We had you know, Rachel Talele, a brilliant director, editing music. I think it's Murray's finest work. And it's just, and Stephen Moffat's incredible writing. I think everyone's firing at four cylinders and it just makes, just, it's a masterpiece in my opinion. You've also got to give it out to Peter Capaldi who has the entire story just to himself. He's acting just by himself. And he's so captivating through the entire thing. And then number three is, I was going to say Murray again. What is wrong with me? Number three is Mummy on the Orient Express. What? What? I, I I was I couldn't believe it when I saw that. It's not a bad story. I like Mummy on the Orient Express. I think it's quite good. But number three, I was saying it's better than Oxygen, better than Flatline. It's a very strange choice. I really haven't got much to talk about Mummy on the Orient Express because I think it's just it's just there. I think it's a I think it's good. I think it's like a good average episode, but I don't think it's anything overly special. But I'm not mad. I'm fine with it. But now I'm going to talk about the bottom three stories. These stories are, at number 33, we have Sleep No More. At number 34, we've got Kill the Moon. And at last place, number 35, is In the Forest of the Night. I think these are all fair placements. I would personally put these three at the bottom as well. I think Sleep No More is an interesting idea. I like the idea of doing like a found footage story for Doctor Who. I'm not mad at that. But... I think the biggest issue with the story is that it ends without a real resolution. It's the doctor being like, I don't know how to stop this. And then he just leaves. That doesn't feel like something the doctor would do. You know, the doctor doesn't leave. And, you know, there was supposed to be a sequel to it, but that never got made. Um, I think because people didn't like this episode. So they were like, well, we're not going to invest in that. Yeah, it just wasn't for me, babes. It wasn't for me. And then you've got Kill the Moon. Full disclosure, I've only ever seen the episode once on initial broadcast because um, I'm deadly afraid of spiders. I don't like looking at them, even CG ones, even ones that don't even look real. I just do not like spiders whatsoever. So I, I'm not going to say it's like the worst episode of all time. Uh, I don't really remember it. I remember the moon is an egg, which is camp and funny. And the final episode, In the Forest of the Night, I have nothing nice to say about the story. It has all the elements of Doctor Who that I don't like. It's fairy tale, but not in a romantic way. I feel like series five is like a fairy tale reimagining of Doctor Who, you know, making, you know, the Doctor stealing a, a magic box and running away as something poetic and, and beautiful. And, you know, with fairy tales, there's an element of like sadness and beauty at the same time. There's a bit of melancholy in there. Whereas in The Forest of the Night, Apparently all the trees are sentient and they just 
pop up. I, I don't know what that's about. It feels like a bit of a stretch of the imagination and uh, it doesn't feel like it fits in with our universe and Doctor Who's universe. It doesn't feel close enough. I don't love stories with children in it because I feel like as a child, I didn't wa- like watching stuff with children in it and kids are annoying. Sorry, but they are. And I can say that because I was a really annoying child. I just used to watch SpongeBob on repeat and my parents hated SpongeBob's stupid laugh, but I loved it. I love SpongeBob. You know, so I was an annoying child. I'm an annoying adult, but I really don't want children on my television screen. And then the ending, which makes no sense. Like the kid that went missing is just like hiding in a bush. Like, was it there for like all the, the whole time? Like, or did like the plants pick up the kid from somewhere? I, I really don't understand what that episode's even about. And then the stock footage stuff and it's just like, oh, it looks so CGI and it looks gross. I, I do not like the story. So no, in the forest of the night, you're the last one. That's fine. But there are a few stories on this list, which the ranking surprised me. Um, one of my favorite stories of the Capaldi era is Oxygen. I definitely put that in my top three. My top three would probably be Heaven Sent, World Enough in Time, and Oxygen. I think it was one of those stories that handled like a social issue like capitalism in a sci-fi concept, but they also made it scary like the story held up because of the critique. They, they were, like you couldn't have the critique without the scariness. Like they, they were intrin- that they, they were both linked. Uh, the idea that you have to pay for oxygen is something that feels hilarious, but also like, oh God, that's probably something that will actually happen. Like nowadays, like everything's subscription. So it feels like the natural progression is, all right, well, space tourism will be a thing. And the idea of like, well, you're going to have to pay to use your suit. It may not be as specific as you're paying for oxygen, but you're paying for this suit and the suit will stop working if you don't return it. You know, that seems like something that an evil capitalist boss would do, wouldn't it? You know, it makes sense. It's it's economical and it's a discard for human life and it's all about profit. The story also works so well because it's terrifying, the idea of space, the descriptions of what will happen to you if you're out there without a suit on. The audience is told this terrifying thing and then you have to see it and you know i think it's the best take on like zombies because it's like the suit's moving so it feels real but it's like a dead body stuck in it and it's horrible and the fear of the vacuum of space and it gets and there's actual real danger for the doctor because it happens to him you know he goes blind you know it's like even the doctor isn't immune from the the dangers of space I think it's a great story to show a Doctor Who fan for the first time because it is, it's showing the scariness of it, but it's also talking about the political side of Doctor Who when it wants to be political and cutting. It is ranked as number five. So it is well-liked. Don't get me wrong. Number five is really high up, um, but I would have had it before before Flatline for sure. Another one that really surprised me was Last Christmas because that was ranked as number 19. And I think for a Christmas special, it's, my second favorite Christmas special. A Christmas Carol is my first, but this is my second favorite. Like, yeah, it's basically just Alien, but the movie Alien, but it's Doctor Who as well. And it's got Santa Claus in it. Like, come on now. That's good shit. There's actually a recurring theme in the Capaldi era. This last Christmas was supposed to be Clara's last story. And she's given like this really great exit at the end of it. But then Jenny Coleman was like, actually, I want to stay on for another year. So they had to like rewrite it last minute. 
And I think the story suffers because of that. Having Clara as an older person, you know, that scene with the Christmas crackers, it breaks my heart every time. And I'm like, that would have been a beautiful exit for Clara. So yeah, I think that like Peter Capaldi's exit, I think would have been better in the Doctor Falls. I think this exit would have been better for Clara as well. That didn't happen. So (laughs) another one that really surprised me, actually this last one didn't surprise me that much, but it's a story that I love and my partner loves as well. Robot of Sherwood. And it came in as number 29. Number 29? Come on now. Robot of Sherwood is really funny. And I think it's a real nice like breath of fresh air in series eight because it's so different. And I think in that story, they nailed Peter Capaldi being funnier and, you know, stuff with like the spoon and stuff like that. But it wasn't too wacky for me. I remember watching it for the first time. I was like, that was brilliant. And then I went on like Tumblr or whatever I was on at the time. And everyone was just like, that sucked, that sucked, that sucked. And I was like, whoa, a whoa. But, you know, we all can't like the same stuff, can we? You know, life would be a bit boring, wouldn't it? So overall, I love the Peter Capaldi era. The majority of it. It really does have its ups and downs. And I think on a personal side, it was definitely during a time where my friends were moving away from the program and it was a much more of a solitary thing. Like it was something I'd watch by myself. It's like I'd talk about online instead of with my friends in real life. So my relationship with the program had to change. And then obviously when the, the Whitaker era came around, a lot of my friends who stopped watching were like, I'm going to give it a go. And they watched the first two episodes and they were like, I hate this. <laughs> so they moved away as well, which was really sad as well. Cause I, I, I kept on, my partner stopped watching after the second episode of Joe. Oh no, his last episode was the one with the pating in it. That's when he was like, I'm calling it a day. And, um, a lot of it, like everyone I talked to, it was just like the frustrations about like stuff would be set up early in the episode and they wouldn't have a payoff. Like in that Bating episode, they start off the episode in a, in a junkyard planet where there's like shit everywhere that needs to be obviously removed. So when we meet this monster, the Bating, and its sole purpose is that it eats, you think the script editor would be like, hmm, this is a monster that can't stop eating. I have a junk planet that's just filled with junk. I'm going to put the pating on the junk planet. And then it solves the problem. And it's a nice way of solving it without killing it or whatever. I just feel like that wasn't a really obvious thing. Because why have that junkyard planet? It's not brought up again. And this was a recurring theme in that first season of Jodie is where it was like something would be set up and never get paid off. And it's like the basics of storytelling. And it was stuff like that that really soured my relationship with the show and a lot of my friends were like yeah just like the writing's not there and it's sad because i really think the public were totally on board for a female doctor you know that first episode had 11 million viewers but it didn't grip people people didn't stay on and that's sad and i really hope people don't think a female doctor was the mistake because i don't think it was but yeah i don't want to bitch about the Whitaker era because i think enough people online are doing that And I don't want to make it my entire personality that I wasn't a big fan of that era. But, you know, I'm looking forward to this new era and I hope the show gets a bit of popularity. And then, you know, those people who are coming back to the show are like, well, I really enjoyed that. Maybe I'll give the Jodie era a go that I didn't watch or I'd give the Capaldi era a go that I didn't watch. So you never know. 
This is the segment where I, Josh Snares, answers questions from the audience, which is you. If you have any questions, queries, or quandaries, chuck an email to whovianapod at gmail.com. That's whovianapod at gmail.com. This first question is from Henry Faint on Instagram. If you could write a Who spinoff, what would it be about and what would be the vibe? I did make a YouTube video about this um, where I pitched my Doctor Who spinoff idea, which was about having a companion spinoff and it'd be an anthology series and each episode would follow a different companion and what happened to them after they left the Doctor. So you'd have like an episode with Susan after the Dalek invasion of Earth. Where is she at now? And um, Or you'd have something like Martha at Unit or, you know... Even you could do spin-off characters, you do like Gwen or, you know, you could do like Luke Smith from Sarah Jane Adventures, you know. So you could do anything with that story. It doesn't even need to be companions. It can be just characters from Doctor Who that feel like they have stories after the Doctor. I think any spin-off works for me if their characters are already established in Doctor Who. Uh, the reason class didn't work for me is because none of those characters were from Doctor Who. They were completely a brand new cast. Whereas I feel like you need like one character from the main show in it. You know, like Sarah Jane Adventures works because Sarah Jane's in it. And everyone else you meet and then they meet Doctor Who Monsters as well. I think it works really well. A second question is from my frenemy, Aiden Green, from the 50% Doctor Who podcast. What is the most underrated New Who episode? The first one that came to mind for me was Father's Day, which was in series one. That is such a powerful episode. And I don't think people really talk about it that often. I feel like it's one of those stories when you watch it, you're like, oh, that was so good. But you never really think about it unless it's like you're doing like a rewatch of an entire season, you know. Um, but I think that's one of the greatest stories in that season. Actually, I think series one is just a bit of a, a bit of a banger all around. There's, it's rarely misses. It's just so good. I think another story that I think is a bit underrated is A Good Man Goes to War. I think like Stephen Moffat, throughout his entire era was constantly like asking the audience, who is the doctor? It wasn't necessarily about the name so much, but like, who is this person? Is this someone who is a God? Is this the guy who's just a bit wacky and just like runs around the universe? Are they a good person or are they a bad person? And I feel like Stephen was the one who really pushed that within the show. And I always liked that. I liked questioning the Doctor. Um, and I think Good Man Goes to War does that really well. Obviously, I already mentioned Robot of Sherwood. I think that's really underrated. And um, I also think The Witchfinders is quite underrated. Or maybe people like that story and I just don't hear people talk about it. But that's my favorite episode from Jodie's first um, season. Alan Cumming is hilarious. And it's one of the few stories in Jodie's entire era where her gender plays a part. <laughs> you know, like she wouldn't have been tried as a witch if she was a man. And I thought that was interesting. Like, I don't think every single story in Jodie's era should be like, well, she's a woman, so she can't do this. Or, you know, it had to, not everything has to come down to the fact that she's a woman, but it should play a role, especially in historical stuff. As, um, you know, sexism alive and well in the year 2023. It should come up. It, it should come up outside of just jokes. You know, we have like, you know, in Spyfall, there's like the joke of being like, I've had an upgrade which I'm all fine with. Like some sad people online got mad about that because, you know, oh, women, ah, I'm so scared of women. It's like, grow up. One thing I've kind of learned is that even a story that you hate, that everyone has decided sucks, someone out there, it's their favorite episode of Doctor Who. 
I heard someone say that their favorite, their second favorite episode of series season 19 was time flight. No one likes time flight. Everyone who worked on it hated it, but it's their second favorite story. America explain. I will never understand that, but you know, each to their own. Well, we've reached the end of the podcast. Thank you once again for watching and or listening to Huviana. Don't forget to click below to subscribe to the official Josh Nez YouTube channel or subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can follow the pod on Instagram and TikTok at Pod. If you have any audience questions, please email them to whovianapod at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the pod, please consider donating to our Kofi account at kofi.com slash joshnares. Thank you once again for watching, and I'll see you next time, or else. Huviana is a podcast by Josh Snares. Music by Barnabas Sharp. The word Huviana was invented by Gemma Boyd. <laughs>